In the fall of 1982, horror fans must have thought they were really dreaming with the arrival of Creepshow, a morbidly funny horror anthology from two of the biggest names in the genre at the time, writer Stephen King and director George A. Romero. A loving ode to those nasty EC comics that so warped the minds of children in the early 50s, the film was the very definition of a comic book movie colorfully replicating the vivid depictions of supernatural terror seen in books like Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror. The film opened to number one at the box office in November of 82, Romero's first and only number one opening, and it made approximately $21 million at the domestic box office, off a budget of around $8 million. So naturally, the creatives involved started talking about making a sequel but it would take a few years for one to finally get off the ground. And that's where we come in, boils and ghouls, because we're going to let you know just what the f happened to Creepshow 2. Though Ramiro and King wanted to stay involved with the sequel, both took a step back from their very hands-on approach with the first one. King was in the middle of writing his epic, It!, and Ramiro was flirting with the adaptation of Pet Cemetery before that fell apart, causing him to embark on making monkey shines for Orion Pictures. Still, King chose which stories he wanted for the film and would outline them in detail, with Ramiro then writing the screenplay. Like the first film, this anthology would consist of five stories and a wraparound tale that would tie it all together. King's choices were Old Chief Woodenhead, the Raft, The Hitchhiker, Pinfall, and Cat from Hell. As you well know by now, the latter two did not make the cut for budgetary reasons. That said, Cat from Hell would emerge triumphant in the Tales from the Dark Side movie just a few years later, while Pinfall, about zombie bowlers exacting revenge against a rival team, yes, really, that's the plot, has never been officially produced. I wonder why. The distributor of the first film, Warner Brothers, did not have faith that a sequel would do as well at the box office as the first one, so they passed on being involved. They left it to a smaller outfit that mostly specialized in genre films to take over. That outfit, New World Pictures, released films like The House Movies, The Stuff, and Vamp, all of which we've covered on this channel. Obviously, the budget would be smaller this time, about half that of the first film, leading to a tighter schedule, restrictions on visual effects, and of course, the elimination of two entire stories. The first director chosen for Creepshow 2 was Tom Savini, makeup artist extraordinaire and longtime Ramiro collaborator. Ultimately, Savini could not direct the film, so the job ultimately went to Michael Gornick, another longtime Ramiro collaborator who was the director of photography on Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and of course, Creepshow. Gornick is responsible for most of those wonderfully cartoony special effects in Creepshow, and as he had already directed episodes of the Ramiro-produced TV series Tales from the Dark Side, the time seemed right for him to get his first shot at helming a feature. Production was mainly set in Arizona, with one segment being shot in Maine, as a favor to, you guessed it, Stephen King as everyone involved wanted at least one segment to be shot in the author's home state. 
Arizona was chosen for the first two tales because it was getting late in the year and they wanted a location where the weather was supposed to be placid and reliable. But you know the old saying about the best laid plans of mice and men. The first segment to be shot was The Raft. At least that was the plan. That nice weather that the production had planned on turned out to be an oasis as suddenly massive storms appeared and shut down production for eight long days. Because everything in the film would be shot on location, they couldn't simply move into a studio or warehouse to work while they waited out the never-ending rain. Gornick, now finding himself over a week behind schedule, suddenly felt pressure from the bonding companies to speed things up and get what they needed in Arizona before moving on to Maine. A studio wouldn't have helped make the raft possible anyway, as the entire tale takes place on a lake. When Gornick and company were able to shoot, they ran into another problem. The Arizona lake was absolutely freezing thanks to the underground spring. Things were so chilly the actor Daniel Beer, who played the lead Randy, got hypothermia while shooting and had to sit out for two days. Another costly delay. So next time you watch The Raft, appreciate the performances from these young actors because they're freezing their fucking asses off. When it was all said and done, Gornick said making The Raft was far and away the most difficult of the segments to shoot. One more issue with The Raft came in the form of the villainous blob that traps and kills off our young protagonists. Simply put, it just didn't look good enough. The lead makeup artist Ed French felt snubbed by Gornick when the director went to French's subordinates for help on how to make the gelatinous monster look better, and he subsequently left the project, leaving Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero to jump in and take over as heads of the makeup department. Hmm. French's departure also affected the role of Creep, who we see at the beginning and end of the film. French was meant to play the character, but after his resignation, the production had to find someone else to play the ghoul. Enter Tom Savini, who had plastered plenty of latex on actors over the years, but actually hated to have it applied to himself. As a favor to his friends, Savini agreed to play the creep, even though he was thoroughly uncomfortable in the makeup chair. The delays on the raft made it so production on that segment bumped up directly against shooting of Old Chief Woodenhead, which was set to star Hollywood legends George Kennedy and Dorothy L'Amour as kindly old folk who are killed by a gang of thugs. Said thugs are subsequently murdered one by one by the titular Wooden Indian. The story was actually considered for the first creep show, as was the third tale, The Hitchhiker. All the locations for Wooden Head were existing locations. Again, no studios or sets for this film, making things challenging for the art department to say the least, who had to dress a handful of trailers, houses, and general stores. Also difficult to bring to life was the character of the vengeful cigar store Indian, who was created by putting a foam suit on an actor. An incredibly warm suit, as it turns out, necessitating production breaks as often as possible to cool down the exhausted actor inside. As a fun side note, the actor who plays cheerful toady fat stuff is actually David Holbrook, whose father Hal of course starred in the Crate segment of the original Creep Show. With that segment in the can, it was time for the crew to move all the way from Arizona to Maine. Quite behind schedule, mind you. The original plan had been to leave Arizona in October, sending them to Maine while it was still comfortably autumn. 
but the various delays found them in November when the entire production outfit arrived in Bangor. And you'd better believe winters start early up there in Maine. Now, Gornick and crew had to deal with icy roads and even chillier conditions, making the action-packed episode even more challenging to pull off than it was already going to be. Clearly, this production needed uh, one or two more delays, right? Well, the original star of The Hitchhiker was Barbara Eden. That's right, I Dream of Jeannie herself. Eden was to play morally dubious hit-and-run driver Annie Lansing in the segment, but literally a day or two before production commenced, Eden got the call from L.A. that her mother was very ill, causing her to drop out of the film. Now, with a day before filming was set to commence, Gornick had to find a new lead actress to play his anti-hero. One-time Bond girl Lois Childs had actually been in consideration for the role at one time, but due to scheduling conflicts, she couldn't commit. Now, thanks to all those delays and the sudden departure of Eden, Child's schedule was clear and she flew into Bangor with literally no time to waste. Evidently, the adverse weather conditions mixed with the very physical aspects of the character's plight got Childs into the zone and aided her performance. And one can't deny that she gives it her all in the face of an incredibly preposterous situation. Thanks for the ride, lady, indeed. Of course, weather became a problem once again, this time in the form of blizzards. Gornick, however, had no time to lose, and he and his crew barreled through whatever harrowing conditions Mother Nature saw fit to give them. Of course, nothing could stop the production from getting a special cameo from the master himself, Stephen King, who appears as a truck driver in the film. Not quite as show-stopping a performance as his Geordie Barrel in Part 1, but hey, any king is welcome, King. What the fuck happened? Unfortunately, the optical effects that so brighten up the original Creepshow's world are missing from this film, mostly because of budget and scheduling issues. So the decision was made to make the wraparound story an animated tale, which would hopefully deliver that EC Comics feel the production wanted to impart. Interestingly, an early idea Gornick had involved live-action segments featuring William Gaines, the publisher of EC Comics appearing before the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, which occurred in 1954 when the government was trying to crack down on disturbing material in comic books. The Senate scenes would precede the animated passages in an effort to enlighten modern audiences to what was going on during that time period when the government was aiming to censor comics. But the idea was jettisoned fairly early on, probably for the best. But it would have been a very interesting addition to the Creepshow world, you gotta admit. Creepshow 2 opened the first weekend of May 1987. It debuted in the number two slot with a little under four million. Not too bad for the time, but quickly fell off soon after, ending its run with approximately $14 million worldwide. Not a massive success, but certainly not a bomb considering the budget was only around $4 million and some people involved went to hell and back to make it. While it doesn't enjoy the reputation its beloved predecessor has, Creepshow 2 is still a favorite amongst plenty of horror fans. Say thanks for the ride to anyone at a convention and they're sure to know what you're quoting. Now, a whole new generation of horror hounds from Maine to Arizona know what Creepshow is thanks to both the original's legacy and Shudder's original series of the same name. And so the rediscovery of Gornick's directorial debut is almost a certainty. And who knows? 
Maybe the creep will reappear in theaters once again. 